Okay, welcome to Not the Wikipedia Weekly or whatever it's being called now. Uh, I am user Scartol, and I am being joined by a number of our friends here to talk about the process of improving and refining articles. Uh, let's go around and introduce ourselves. Moni, why don't you go next? Hi, I'm Moni3. And I am a Wadawit. And I am Phil. Excellent. Uh, well, um, uh, all of us have worked on articles, um, improving them, getting them to uh, higher status than they were before. And so we thought we'd start where a lot of Wikipedia articles start, that is in stub class or stub status. And uh, I guess the first criteria is, you know, we don't need to go into the whole notability thing, but um, starting a stub article. When well, do you do it and how do you do it right? Actually, I write two. I write two different kinds of stubs. Um, I write stubs that I'm intending to create good articles or featured articles out of, and I write stubs that I'm not intending to do anything further with. You know, I'm just going to leave them for other people to improve. And the articles that I'm just leaving for other people to improve, I usually just source to like a single source that I know is reliable. So like a specialist encyclopedia or something. And they're usually just a, a few paragraphs long and they, they cover the major topics related to that, that subject, but they don't go into any depth. Um, but I just want to know that it has a reliable, you know, at least one reliable source there for it. But the stubs that I'm going to um, create a much larger article around, um, I actually uh, usually include a very large bibliography for um, at the same time that I'm making it. So that like all the sources I want to use to create the article are there from the beginning. And is that for your purpose mostly or is that for other people as well? I mean, I use it for myself. Of course, it would be lovely if other people helped out. That's never happened. <laughs> I was going to ask if you ever had somebody stumble along and say, oh, I think I'll pick this up. No, no. You wish it would happen. I usually, <laughs> Moni? I usually, I usually um, start articles as a um, start class instead of stubs because um, I'm trying to get a, a do you know tag off of it. Uh, and I have to do it all within five days with, with um, good citations, and I usually don't have the time to come back after I create a stub of several sentences and uh, create something like a B-class article. So I try to post it as either a start-class or B-class article. Mm, yeah, I know what you mean. And we'll we'll come back to discussion about some of that and come back to sandboxing and things. Um, well, all right, I anything else about stubs? I'm a big fan so. of stubs, and I've written several hundred stubs, and I concentrate more on that um, stub and start end of the article spectrum than I do on the GA and FA end of the spectrum in opposition to some other people. I, I think a, a nice, tight stub or start that really you don't expect to go any place be, beyond a stub or a start can be quite helpful. Uh, not that there isn't a, a, a place for having more GAs and FAs, which I support, but I think there's a lot of place to fleshing out, uh, particularly in the humanities, our red links by creating stubs and starts. Uh, we are extremely deficient in lots of areas, um, articles that, that are just uh, crying out to be written, and uh, we don't have them. And sometimes in some kind of amazing areas, actually. It's amazing what we don't cover. So I'm a big fan of stuff. So just starts. to play devil's advocate, then, 
Yeah, just to play devil's advocate then, I guess my question would be, you know, is it better to have a tiny mention about, say, a book or a story containing information that most people probably know anyway than it is to have no article at all? Well, that's a good question. I've actually had a few articles that have that have a lot of red links in them, and some people come along behind them, behind me, and create the red links out of almost exactly the same wording that's in the larger article that I've already posted. And in that case, I'm not sure it's that much better because it just says the you know the exact same thing as what's in the the article that I've I've just written. And I really don't like the, the fact that some of the words that I've, I've used are copied. And it doesn't really give the reader any other uh, greater understanding about the subject than they already have. I would agree this with that. This the question of what's a good stub, right? I mean, what, what really is a good stub? Uh, earlier, um, actually, in the chat, we were talking about stubs, and I showed Cartel what I considered a stub that I had just written on the Eclectic Review, which was a journal published in the 19th century. And um, Scartel, when you looked at it, you said it wasn't a stub. <laughs> and well, it just, why it just, do you it, think it's not a stub? Well, I would say that it doesn't it doesn't fit what I generally think of when I think of a stub. I'm imagining, you know, at most three or four sentences, no section headings, you know, one of those cute little tags at the bottom saying, oh, this is a stub. That's a stub, um, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. and it has like a three-paragraph lead. It has four sections, and I mean, it has it has multiple paragraphs. But one of the reasons I consider it a stub is because it is sourced entirely to one article in one specialist encyclopedia. So there really is no verification beyond this, you know, one scholar's view about what the eclectic review was like. You know, and so now I've basically replicated that information here, you know, reorganized it, put in, you know, the details that that person had, and that's all we've got. So that's well, one re- reason I view it as a stub. Sure. Phil, you had your hand up. Did you want to say something about stubs? Yeah, I would agree with Moni. Uh, I would like to – I personally don't think it's worth making a stub unless it contributes new information. Now, I think I – we discussed the last time I weighed in that I really believe all articles – should be able to stand on their own. I don't want to force the reader to have to click endlessly links. They, their finger gets pretty tired from doing all that clicking, and they get lost in a maze of a, a graph structure, a tree structure, so so deep they can't uh, remember what they were looking for originally. So all articles should be self-contained with a little bit of information, I believe. So you shouldn't neglect good writing style um, just because you've got the ability to produce links in it and make hyperlinks. But the hyperlink should have something unique or special to it. Otherwise, it's not even worth making it. I mean, it just just to make it, just to get the red out, it seems sort of uh, dumb to me. And um, But there is still, I would say, in certain areas, in spite of the fact that we've got, what, two and a half million articles in English Wikipedia, uh, there are still lots and lots of areas where it's really surprising that important topics have almost no information about them. And um, Yeah, I, I'm working I, on the Maya Angelou's autobiography, uh, I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings, and she, you know, half of her books at least are red links, which is very surprising to me given the popularity of her writing. It, it can be quite quite surprising, the, the kind of things that are left out. I just, um, I'm just, when I wander around, I'm just it never ceases to amaze me what we don't have. 
uh, in all kinds yeah. of, of But areas. you can rest assured that every Naruto character has his or her own page, or at the very least, a link will be redirected to something that gives us the information we need. Okay, let's uh, let's go ahead and move on from Stubbs. Um, if, if, let's say we, we've chosen a topic, we're interested in making it a better article. Um, what, what is the next step? Well, well, for me, that's clearly research. Yeah, I was going to say the same um, thing. I want to see more more references. Yeah, research for me too is just going hunting down everything I can possibly read about something. Mm-hmm. What is, Where do you start? Go ahead. Yeah, I was I was going to say yeah. What what is the research methodology that um, you use? Everyone has a different way of finding materials. What what you know? How do you find the sources that you're going to use for writing these articles? Well, I'll tell you what I do. Well, first I start. Oh, well, go ahead, Phil. Let's, we haven't heard from Moni in a little bit. Go ahead, oh, Moni. Go let's ahead. start with you, and then we will come back to Phil. Okay. All right. Well, first I start with what's most available to me, and that's uh, just what's at my fingertips. And it may be uh, whatever book I'm reading that's associated with the article that I'm writing right now, or a topic that I just find interesting. Uh, and then I'll do like a Google search and find out what's available in the first two pages, uh, and then I'll check uh, the like. I'll check the library that's uh, close to me um, and see what they have in books. And then I'll start looking for uh, newspaper articles and then journal articles on JSTOR or whatever is available there. Uh, and so it, there is at some point uh, at a point where I just start looking at the notes section of the bibliographies of books that I'm already reading. And then I start picking up more and more and more uh, until it I, I have to go to what seems to be really far lengths to find the books and the, the sources that I'm looking for. For those who don't know, JSTOR is an online database that has a lot of academic articles on it. Uh, Phil? Yeah, what I do, uh, the, my first glance is uh, I'll, I will look at, say, the first 100 or 200 hits in Google. And a lot of times those will have links in those, so it can be a little bit of a, a lengthy process. And I will read those, not all of them will be relevant, of course, and try to keep some notes. I will also go to my local library, which has a lot of electronic databases built into it. I'll look at the books. I'll look at the electronic databases. Uh, Also, I I will mention, when I go to Google, I just don't do a regular Google search. I I will look at Google Books as well and Google Scholar. And a lot of times that will give certain clues. Sometimes Google isn't quite good enough, so I will use some of the other Search engines like uh, Dogpile I like, or uh, which which lumps together about ten search engines, or um, eventually I would like there are these uh, deep web search tools, uh, which will actually go to stuff that's not indexed by the search engines, and I haven't explored those yet, but I, I have in mind uh, trying that to, to dig out uh, things that are a little little more hidden. Only about ten percent or so I think of the web is searchable by regular search engines. Um, some people have specialized databases like at the Library of Congress or uh, I've gone to the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris and so on to look at their collections. Um, sometimes what I'll do for a little bit of a, this is kind of cheating, but if I'm, I'm dealing with an article that has much better articles in the other languages, say Portuguese or Spanish, French, German, uh, Russian, I'll, I'll look at those. I can read the French. I can kind of fight my way through the German, sort of. I'll use translation tools 
to kind of get the regular gist of it. And a lot of times they'll have better references that I can look up, sometimes in English, sometimes in uh, some other language. And then again, I'll use the translation tools. And I can, I can use those clues to try to build up a better picture of what's going on. So I use everything that comes, at, comes uh, close to me to try it. Newspapers as well. Sometimes I'll ask yeah. reference librarians to help me. Yeah, I remember a while ago at one time you mentioned something about how you found it useful to look in a book that uh, is about the subject and then see what the bibliography of that book has in it, and you can sort of find certain texts showing up again and again. Uh, I've actually reached a point. I have to say, first of all, thank you very much to Jay Henry, the user of Wikipedia, uh, who had, who at one point mentioned to me that I live right near the University of Wisconsin in Madison. Duh, they have a great library. Maybe I could go in and if not get you know an actual membership to check out books, I could go in and make photocopies and take notes and whatnot. Well, it turns out that since I'm a high school English teacher in the region, um, I was allowed to get an actual membership. So now, whenever I'm going to find a topic, you know, Emmeline Pankhurst is my most recent example, I went in and I just found every book that mentioned her, you know, and I just sort of checked it out and ended up with 20 books, you know, breaking my back. And then, you know, as I go through, I decide, okay, this book isn't very useful, you know, I, I need to go back and get this other book, which I didn't think I needed. Um, but, uh, you know, having that access to, you know, if you live near a university library, they can be infinitely uh, useful in, in this sort of work. And uh, yeah, so uh, thanks to both you and him for those suggestions there. What about, did you have anything about source finding? or? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that, is, of course, is very important to remember is that each, like, discipline is is extremely different. So, like, right. I once tried to start researching a medical article, and I realized I really have no idea how to do that. And it would take me a really long time to learn. You actually develop an expertise um, in learning how to research. And if you've never done any research before, it's going to take sort of a long time to learn how to do that. I would. I learned, I learned that months. on no 3 yeah. Yeah. Um, and... For example, um, in the humanities, there are often introductory books that are written for undergraduates. So, like, there's a Cambridge Companion series on authors and literature that is supposed to introduce you um, in a sort of easy, accessible way to an author. So, for example, when I started working on the Mary Shelley article, um, I went and I got that book, and in the back, it lists specifically the biographies that are important um, to read on Mary Shelley and the important scholarly secondary works, and I just started reading all of those. Um, so that's helpful because that's already been sort of culled for you by someone else. And there are these kinds of things in, in other disciplines. And the minute you can start to identify what those are in the disciplines in which you work, it makes finding the sources much easier. Because there's a lot of stuff written on Mary Shelley, and I'm not going to be able to read all of it. But if someone who has an expertise in that area has already said, no, you don't have to read all of it. Here are the five biographies that you should read. Right. You know, that that already helps enormously. So, yeah, I would also – go ahead. Yeah. Okay, so I was going to say, for example, in the Mary Shelley article, that's exactly what we did. We started with that baseline of text, and we read those few biographies and those few secondary works so that we didn't have to read hundreds of books and articles on Mary Shelley. You know, we only had to read, you know, 30 or 40 instead. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and one thing I noticed that was very nice. This, I hope this is a trend in biographies. Uh, when doing the Harriet Tubman article and Emmeline Pankhurst, both a number of the books started off. The most recent biography started off with a bit of a survey of other things that had been written about this person, and that was very helpful. Because then when I went and looked at Bradford in the case of Tubman, or you know other things in the case of Pankhurst, I had an idea of where that writer was coming from and what to expect from it. So, uh, you, you know, even if you do go back to those older sources, you have some sort of framework. You know what you're 
working with there. Uh, the other thing you had mentioned at one point, Ottawa, is uh, that there's an important difference between university presses, for instance, and popular publication, you know, group, companies that publish books, uh, just for general audiences. And I don't know if you wanted to mention something about that here. Yeah, um, scholars who write biographies or secondary works for university presses, those works are generally much more respected within the scholarly community, and they've been reviewed by scholars. Um, things that are that are published by trade presses, even if they're written by scholars, are not necessarily reviewed by other scholars. They may have been, but they they aren't necessarily so. And oftentimes they're selected because people believe that they'll sell well. So you could actually find interesting reviews of a, a recent Cicero biography, for example, that will explain um, the other scholars have reviewed and said, yeah, you know, this is an interesting sensationalistic story of Cicero, and we have no doubt that this was chosen because it will sell well, but it's not very accurate. Interesting. You know, I'm so curious. Particularly interesting, yeah. Yeah, I'm curious, Moni, about you know something like the Everglades. When you started working on that, that's such a huge topic, and surely there's been so much written. How did you go about narrowing down your sources for that one? Well, you know, it's a, a lot has been written about it, but definitively, I was surprised to find the group of sources were really small. So I actually ended up buying most of the sources I used for uh, the Everglades articles, and a lot of it was um, biology, a lot of it was geology, and some stuff that I really didn't have uh, have a lot of experience with. But I, as I read, I, I kind of got it, and I understand what a lot of it was talking about with with medical articles. Um, that you kind of have to teach yourself what you're doing, and sometimes you realize that you're you're really out of out of out of you know it's over your head. Um, but I used a lot of uh, of books and in um, in newspaper articles, and surprisingly, I didn't find a lot of journal articles that would be readily accessible uh, for um, for people who were interested in the Everglades. They were very specialized about uh, populations of wading birds or, you know, one type of fish or one type of duck or something like that. And I'm not sure that that, you know, general readers would, would have been interested in that. But you'll be ready when you need to write an article about that one type of bird. So was it a chicken or an egg type of thing? Was it that you had decided to do articles on all of these different aspects of the Everglades? Or did you buy the books and then you said, well, I have all these books. I might as well do these other articles as well. Well, I guess the chicken and the egg was reading the, or seeing the Everglades article as having nine paragraphs and no citations and thinking it was, you know, almost criminal to, to see that, you know, 900 people a day read that and it was nothing. It was really, really poorly written and had no citations to it and it's just a massive part of uh, of the, the wilderness area of Florida and a good reason why lots of people come here. And then to, to find out that it's got nothing. So, you know, I go and I try to find uh, – actually, my first place I stopped was the bookstore of Everglades National Park. Uh, and then uh, find out what uh, those people are saying about it. What's What do newspaper stories say? They Well, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas wrote a lot about it. So you, write, you read about what she wrote, and she wrote about some people, and you go find what they wrote about it. And then you go find where they've been cited in other things. And it's just – it's almost like – uh, Wikipedia itself, where one click brings you so far that you can't remember where you where you started. Right, right. Okay, so we've got our sources, we know our topic, and then the next step is taking notes. Some of us start writing right away. Um, I don't know who wants to start talking about the process of actually putting it all together. Phil, you had something you wanted to say, or did you want to start us off here? Well, uh, I was just going to say uh, something else came to mind. 
a lot of times when you're going into a new field, there's specialized language. And so sometimes it, it can be mm -hmm. uh, a little tricky to ferret that out. One of the tools I like is uh, onelook.com. Uh, last time I checked, which was, oh, gee, that was about six months ago, it searched through something like 900 dictionaries simultaneously. And uh, it's probably more than that now. And I go through the, the definitions of unfamiliar terms that are in some specialized area, and I might go through, you know, I might get 100 or 200 hits in different dictionaries, some of them very specialized medical dictionaries or legal dictionaries, and I'll go through the, the range of definitions. Uh, I'll go and check in the OED and Webster's. A lot of times in the in the footnotes in those dictionaries, they'll have inf interesting information, and that can really help uh, flesh out your background information when you're really researching one of these uh, topics you, you may be less familiar with, or some kind of more obscure aspects. Maybe somebody you know wrote about it in the 1500s or 1600s, and that's mentioned in the OED, and you will find that out when you're digging around, and that can be very very helpful. I was going to say. So that, that's all I was going to add. Yeah. It's just a, a plug for onelook.com. Yeah. It's a great tool. To sure. add one point about uh, researching, also, um, the librarians can be extremely helpful. Um, I know that, for example, if I wanted to go back to that medical article, I would go and I would find a medical reference librarian because that would be the person who would help me figure out which of these sources is going to be most helpful and which is most obscure. I mean, when you really don't know how to research something, you should ask someone who does know, right. and and they can provide you with you know specific area recommendations. So that's just what I was going to say. Always ask for help. Yeah, and I would say that the, the wiki projects are also really useful in that regard because when I was working on MEO3, you know, I could go to the people at the wiki math project and say, you know, look, I'm lost. Where do I start? And, and they were able to point me to some really good sources, not only in terms of like which libraries to look at or what, yeah, what publication types, but also, you know, specific texts that were like, okay, this doesn't have, you know, her name in it or it doesn't seem like it's specifically about her, but it, then it, you know, becomes a very useful thing later on. And also, if you can get someone like Willow to come on and like do all the math for you, that's a really good thing. Thing to do for you know articles like that because you know she just took it away so um, well I'll say you know just real quick about the process of, of writing and taking notes I mean usually when I start in researching a topic I'm so fired up about it at the start of it that I want to actually start composing and I don't go through and you know some people like to go through and take all their notes first and read everything and, and get a really comprehensive sense of the whole scope of it, but I always find that, um, especially when I'm writing biography articles, you know, this stuff in, in different biographies obviously is going to vary in terms of which details it includes and whatnot and how much depth it goes into, but there is a general sense, okay, this person was born in this town, and so I can get information about that and um, usually, you know, piece it together as I go, and then obviously as I get more into it, I can go back and revise a little bit, but there comes a point, it seems, where I usually have to stop and pull back and say, okay, now where's the rest of it going to expand into and how much depth am I going to put into this area or that area? Um, so you that's write sort of, and research at the same time? I pretty much do. You know, my parents bought me this book about Leonardo da Vinci when I was a kid, and I don't know how true it is, but you know, the story was in the book that uh, you know his parents bought him paints, and he was really into painting for a while, and then he got tired with that, so they bought him clay, and he you know, played with the clay for a while. And I think I'm like that. Like I can't stay focused on just one thing. I guess they call it attention deficit disorder now, but but I'm just so interested in whatever it is I'm working on that I just want to go ahead and see some of that finished product 
right off the bat, even if it means I have to go, but it's not going to be the finished product, but I have to see, you know, the end form of it in some shape or form. And it feels like I'm making that progress as I go. And then of course, you know, it has its negatives because I need to go back and revise stuff that I've written before. Once I find another book, Oh, this has this other information in it. Um, but, but it's my own, I guess it's my temperament. It's, it's the way that I have to follow that, you know, excitement and keep it moving so that I don't, um, find myself, you know, sort of bogged down by the actual research process. I guess I'm I'm sort of the reverse in the sense that I like to have all of I take a lot of notes uh, when I read. And part part of that's because I want to have the notes for my own, you know, writing like on my dissertation or my future career so it's useful for me, but also because I want to be able to arrange all my little quotations that I've taken from the sources and see, oh yes, you know, um in History of a Six Weeks Tour by Mary Shelley, you know, four different scholars have talked about the sublime. Therefore, I have to talk about the sublime <laughs> where, you know, only one scholar has talked about the issue of the romance. Therefore, that's what's important you know and i can see that right there in the numbers and and in the quotations or you know something like that um i mean i write entire sections when i know i'm not going to have any more research on a particular area like i know i've got all the background on mary shelley's rambles in germany and italy and i'm not going to have any more background information on that so i've written that now but i still that article is still a red link because i don't want to put up one part of the article without having the rest of it which I think, you know, brings up the question about the sandbox, because I do have that article in the sandbox right now. Mm-hmm. And we were talking about whether or not that's a good way to write or a, a wiki way to write. And so there are, you know, advantages and disadvantages to the sandbox. Yeah. I want to I explore that just a second. Moni, did you have anything about, like, your process in terms of, you know, do you take notes? Do you start writing right away? Do you do both? Do you do neither? Well, Skartal, you and I should be in like a room writing together, and I'm sure it would be like the funnest thing to watch of all time. Because uh, I start off, if somebody actually watched this and tried to document the, the way I write, they would just be appalled. They would just, just, just shocked. Um, I'm what I consider to be extraordinarily undisciplined and a very passion based, just like you are. So whatever it is that captures me at the moment is what I'm going to write about. And if it's that, you know, that one aspect of the story that uh, that really has captured my imagination, then I'll focus on that part of the article, and then I'll expand it from there. Um, and and you also spoke about the, the the attention deficit disorder type of all over the place, and uh, and even uh, Leonardo da Vinci's painting. And I I am a painter, or actually I was. I stopped painting about a year ago. I'm going to pick it up when back you found again. Uh, let's not make that connection right now because I'd rather not get into that. Um, however, uh, I also noticed the same thing when I started a painting. It wasn't very pretty until I hit one point, and whatever that one point was, then it, that painting I could see, I could see the, the finish of it. I could see how it was going to end and how good it was going to look at the end. And then at the same time, uh, when I'm writing an article, I kind of hit a point where all these kind of weird, disjointed facts come into, and all of a sudden you have a story and that story is going to be a very very good article and that's when it starts to to make a lot more sense and uh the the writing is a lot less frantic and and uh, uh a lot more um fun i guess towards the end although the beginning is also just as fun 
and it can cause problems in my end. I mean, I you know I, the reason I had to put I put Emmeline Pankhurst on hold for you know a month is because I started into it when I was during summer break and it was great and I had all this time and I could really focus and then school started and suddenly I had absolutely no time and so I had to just put it to the back and I think it was for that reason that I was really glad I did that in a sandbox. You know, for those who don't know, sandboxing is when you you you, you basically you write the article in your user space. You'll create a subpage. Some of us have you know actual sandboxes devoted or you know a canvas or drawing board or whatever you call it and you do sort of a first draft of it in your own namespace and that way you know people aren't coming in making edits you don't have ip concerns you know people anonymously changing things and for me you know when i'm doing a first draft of an article that i expect to take to featured article status you know i i want it to be something i can completely devote everything of my own to and not have to worry that I have to go back later and, and change things that, that somebody else has changed or, or you know just check to make sure that they're you know valid as I go. I figure I can start doing that once it's in the main namespace. And I understand that some people are concerned because that feels like there's an ownership problem there. But you know from where I stand, like look, you know, most of the articles that I've written uh I'm devoting, you know, days literally of my life to this work, and I think that a little bit of that kind of, you know, uh, research-based protectionism is not out of order, you know, and that I, I I deserve a little bit of privacy to to make that first draft. And it's not like I'm going to say, oh, it can never be changed after I write it. It's just that while I'm doing that first phase of the work, I just want to be left alone so I can come up with what I've got, and then I can say, okay, here you go. You know, everybody in the world can obviously go and do what they will to it. I have something I could add about that. I feel like I, you had, I was going to say, yeah, like you had something on the sandbox. Yes. Yeah. Um, when I first got onto Wikipedia, people kept saying sandbox, sandbox. I didn't know what the heck they were talking about. I didn't even understand it. it. I didn't even know where to find out about it or even how to start one. And I probably have probably pretty close to 100 articles sitting in sandboxes or rewrites of articles sitting in sandbox at the moment. Now, I don't always go by the sandbox. Uh, use sandbox versions, although I have quite a few of them. Sometimes, if there's an article that's, you know, at some stage, uh, primitive stage, and I see it's missing a piece or or needs uh, needs a little bit of tweaking, add some extra information that's lacking, I'll just do it right there on the fly, and it'll evolve in the main space. Other times, especially if it's an article about something I don't know very much about or a complete rewrite of an article that's already out there, and I don't want... As uh, Skartal was talking about, I don't want other people monkeying with it while I'm trying to do it, and I'm just trying to get up to speed. I'll do it in a sandbox. So as an example, I have had a, gee, I guess it's about almost a year now, I've had um, falsifiability, I didn't even know what I'm going to call it eventually, but evolution and falsifiability or uh, what have you. Something to do with the concept, philosophy of science, concept of falsifiability uh, initiated by Karl Popper, I'm no philosopher, and how it pertains to evolution. And the reason I came to this is I've worked a lot, as people probably know, on intelligent design articles and creationism articles, and this is a very prominent part of the discussion and the disputes between uh, evolutionary biology and creationists, or intelligent design supporters. And I didn't really know much about it because... You know, when you get a PhD in the physical sciences, you don't really care what the philosophers is, are talking about. I mean, you don't care. Well, they're just a bunch of nitwits over there in the in the humanities area. You don't care what they think, and you don't pay attention to what they say. 
And this is a very important part of this debate. So I thought, well, I've got to learn something about it. So I started it off in the sandbox. And I think it's, I, I read an awful lot of stuff about it. And I think even my draft here is probably the best, the most complete thing you'll find anywhere on the web at this point. It's maybe got two or three hundred references, although it's still lacking a few. I need to make another few passes at it. Then when I got it to a point where I thought, okay, this is kind of getting there. I then had, you know, having worked on Wikipedia for a while, I've got a family of people that I know, friends, that I know are are similar maniacs in the same area as me, experts of one type and another, and, um, you know, real, you know, biology PhDs or uh, philosophy PhDs or people who are very, very well versed in this debate between creationism and evolution. And I invited them in, I, I guess I've had about four or five, I've invited them in selectively to come and edit in my sandbox. So they then have the privilege of of then, in uninterrupted fashion, without having to deal with, with edit warring and so on, they will make a pass, and I, I leave them alone to do that. And they, you know, because I've chosen well, um, there's almost nothing I disagree with. They've all added to it considerably. And then it, it eventually I'll fill in the, the missing references that I still feel I need, missing red, red links. And then I'll go live at some point, maybe in the next few months. And I, I believe this will really fill a, a substantial chunk of, uh, of needed uh, discourse in this whole area of which Wikipedia occupies a, a very prominent place. I and mean, we get um, some of our articles get many hundreds of thousands of hits per year and you know lots of them get 50 100,000 hits a month so we we do actually uh, occupy a very important place in this this entire um, discussion which is ongoing yeah, you know it's really wild that you mentioned Karl Popper, uh, Phil, because there's a really good podcast coming out of Australia called The Philosopher's Zone. If you search for Philosopher's Zone, you'll find uh, the link to it. And they just recently had a show all about Karl Popper, so it's really fortuitous that that comes up right now. Um, and I think that you know, to me, that has to do with the question of sort of a little bit of deliberate calm review of the basic concepts before we start. You know, when it, when there's an edit war going on, or when there's somebody who's charging that you know this must be included, this has to be excluded, it seems like there's a need to have a definitive decision made right then and there, and that it's something that the passions are so inflamed about that this is one thing that seems like a good argument in favor of sandboxing to a degree is is that we can sort of take our time and slowly deliberate. Okay, rationally speaking, trying you know giving that we're, assuming that we have good faith, we're trying to include every you know reasonable element of it. And it's a way for us to calmly and rationally sort through it all without having to, you know, have you know individual editors bringing in a specific, a specific point of view, saying, you know, oh well, this has to be included, and and trying to force a decision rather than sort of looking at it with some dispassion, if that can be done. And obviously, we're all individuals, and there's that whole debacle to be sorted through. Um, but what do I don't know if you had thoughts about sandboxing and whatnot. Well, to, to be the devil's advocate, uh, let me present some arguments against talk. sandboxes. Either strongly um, for or I strongly against. Right with the meat sandboxes. It doesn't really seem that there were people in the middle. And, uh, I mean, the, the people who are against sandboxes have, have real legitimate points. Um, for example, it really does seem to be against the wiki philosophy. The wiki philosophy is that you present all, you know, that you put everything out in the open and that 
incrementally over time what people add will eventually make the article better. And the idea is that when you're putting something in user space in your sandbox, you're not allowing that to happen. I mean, and that's fundamentally against, you know, the idea of what the wiki is supposed to be. Everyone contributes, and when then, and then when there's a dispute, you can take that dispute to the top page. But that once you, when you have the article in the sandbox, no one can even dispute about it because people don't even know it's there. But it's not as though that's being kept in the sandbox forever. I mean, to me, it seems like that's a long-term, short-term thing. You know, from my perspective, like, okay, if the technology existed then, to see what people are adding while they're adding it, that is to say, like, real-time viewing of what people are typing, like, is that going to be necessary? Because then, oh, well, I know what they're adding. It just seems like that's a kind of urgency of, of transparency that, to me, doesn't seem very important. But that's just me. Uh, let me weigh in here. Yeah, uh, that... Yeah, uh, just for a second. So, so it's a little different in controversial and non-controversial controversial areas. They're in the very controversial mm, yeah. areas, for example, there are people who are dead set against uh, against the topic even appearing at all because they view it as almost like a culture mm. war. Uh, this sounds kind of funny when you're talking about Mary Shelley or whatever, where things aren't quite so inflamed. But in areas <laughs> like uh, the paranormal or um, uh, pseudoscience or pseudomedicine, uh, quack medicine, um, creationism, uh, conspiracy theories, and so on, uh, passions are extremely inflamed, and there can be um, just a, a real battle. And and uh, you can really end up with severe trouble where you're not actually even able to produce anything because the goal of the other party is not to help you write an article. The goal is to drive you off Wikipedia and drive all your content out. Mm -hmm. And so in those areas, it's more like a street fight. It's not really a collaborative thing. So there, a sandbox can be very helpful. It might be the only way to get an article started. I will also point out... Right, I've seen that actually as, uh, when I was reading the archives of homeopathy, again, for my Wikimedia paper. They used the sandbox to try to sort of restart the article, you know, like a sort of blank slate. Yes. Let's start over. But I think the kind of sandbox we're talking about here is when one person yes. um, mm -hmm. is doing it. Although even at when I was reading the homeopathy archives, there was the accusation of ownership yes. that the person who had started the sandbox and said, only I'm going to make the changes – because we're going to agree on the changes on the talk page first, and then once we all agree, you know, once we come to a consensus, um, then I'm going to make the changes. That was that was a, apparently an ownership problem, and that I think is another one of the the accusations are always going to be leveled against the sandboxes. And in, in fact, that's been leveled against me. We have a, a lot of the Jane Austen articles in sandboxes right now because they're just a mess. I mean, they're just notes. They're, I mean, they're not an article. You couldn't even put them up if you want to. And on the the Jane Austen talk page, someone said, well, you know, we really don't think this is a good idea that you're putting all of these in sandboxes because people can't contribute to them. And even though every time somebody comes by the Jane Austen talk page and, you know, says whatever they want about the Austen article, we say, oh, are you interested in helping us? We are desperately <laughs> in need of people to help us because it is so hard to write all of these Austen articles. And every time we invite people, of course, they say no because they don't want to do all the research. Even though we have all our notes online, this is a desperate plea to anyone. We have all our notes online. They can read all our notes and help us. Um, they have not seemed to want to help us write the article, but they still felt that having the article in the sandbox was sort of like a put off, to, you know, to change. Because, again, you know, not anyone could go and edit it unless we invited them to come and edit it. 
Well, in the homeopathy case, that was a different kind of sandbox. You're quite right. There was one person implementing yeah. the changes, but everybody, uh, and there was a group of about 10 or 15 or 20 of us that were suggesting changes, and that actually was the only way the article could be markedly improved, which it was. It was markedly improved and got to GA status. I don't know if it got beyond GA status. Then then we got back to the same pitched battles, but at least we were fighting on a much higher level than we were before it went into the sandbox. Uh, that's. I will point out that that method of doing it where, where it, you had to have consensus before a change was implemented, that's something kind of like I, I envisage uh, would happen with the flag revisions that... Uh, that uh, German Wikipedia has. Mm -hmm. They also tried it at Evolution. I don't know if they're still doing it, but they, they had sort of a committee of people who sort of uh, managed it. They had a, a uh, draft article. If you wanted to get get some something in, you, you would edit the draft article, and if this committee agreed that it was a worthwhile change, then they would implement it in the locked Evolution article itself because it was getting so much vandalism. Uh, the, the other thing I was going to mention about sandboxes which came up in one of the not the Wikipedia weekly shows where they were editing an article live, uh, and anybody who's done this, this is part of the reason that it drove me to sandboxes. Actually, when you start an article and you say, "Well, I'm going to start with the first couple of sentences and then enter it," and so you start with a stub, a good fraction of the time, people who are on on recent changes patrol will take a look at your two or three sentences, and even though you say you're you're building it and it was uh, your last edit was 30 seconds ago, they'll delete the whole article on you. And so that's very, very uh, difficult. So, uh, you know, to, in some of these areas where, where there are people patrolling pages for new articles and trying to delete them as fast as you can write them, sometimes the only way to get it started is to actually start in a sandbox. And so when it comes live, at least it's got 20 sentences and three references, and they don't delete it immediately on you. And they had that happen at not the Wiki. Or you can just wiki. write it off Wiki. Yeah, or off Wiki, yeah. yeah. Which yeah. I've done that too. Yeah, just, sure. yeah. yeah. Moni, did you have something about um, announcing things beforehand? Well, I generally tend to uh, stick to articles where uh, it's not a very high quality or it's been a B-class article for a while, a year or so, many months or something like that. So um, I generally tend to uh, talk to the go to the talk page, announce that I'm interested in rewriting the article, ask if anyone wants to help, and tell them that I'm going to do it in a sandbox. Um, I did that with To Kill a Mockingbird. I did that with Stonewall Riots. I did that with Harvey Milk and a few others. Uh, and uh, I have yet to receive any kind of feedback on I uh, really want to help out with this. Actually, um, I did receive a lot of good input when I rewrote Mulholland Drive, uh, which I did more like in chunks, adding to the article that existed uh, instead of completely write, rewriting it from top to bottom. Wait a minute, uh, wait, 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 wait. I'm sorry. Let me interrupt here for a second. You're, are you saying that an article about a movie got more responses from the Wikipedia community as a whole than did an article about an important work of literature? I'm, I'm very shocked. confused. I'm shocked. I can't imagine. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, that's actually what happened. I uh, Two weeks before I started adding information to To Kill a Mockingbird, I um, posted on the talk page that I think it should be a featured article. Uh, even though I had not yet written one, and uh, if anyone wanted to help out, then you know, please let's go ahead and talk about what should be done. 
and I ended up doing the majority of the work myself, um, and that happened with a few other articles that I did. Um, but when I went to Mulholland Drive and said that you know the movie was was in my head and and I just wanted to write about it and learn more about it, then as soon as I started adding information, um, three or four different editors chipped in and started to edit what I had done, and it was a different writing experience. And that was in the namespace, or was that in your user space? Well, I would add chunks. Um, I would I would write chunks in a sandbox, like uh, the the uh, character section. Uh, I would write paragraphs and then post it um, uh, as I was I was reading more about it. Uh, but other editors would come along almost immediately and edit and clean up and kind of twist my you know not twist my words, but kind of <laughs> saying you got you got some POV here and you need to move it, you need to change it. And I I do right. my best. It was some more community experience writing Mulholland Drive. Than it, than, than it was writing um, To Kill a Mockingbird. Um, I actually uh, co-wrote Mary Shelley with QP10QP, and it was great because QP10QP focused a lot on the biography, and I focused more on the writing part, and it was just like such a load off because I didn't have to do everything the way I had done with um, so many of the other author biographies I had done. And, you know, I could just read, you know, the biographies much more lightly, didn't have to take so many notes, you know, and I could sort of rely on QP to do, um, you know, all of that detail and we could make small decisions about that together. And then I could focus much more on the literary stuff, which is more my specialty anyway. It was just so nice to work with somebody because usually I'm all alone on articles. You know, and I mean, for me, at least from my perspective, you know, it comes down to a personality thing. Like I, I find that in general, especially when I'm doing things like writing, I find that I work much better by myself. Like I like to be the the hermit in the tiny little, you know, corner office and just leave me alone and like bring me a new pen every once in a while. And then I can, you know, just sort of put it out there and be like, okay, now that I've got something that I'm happy with, you know, other people, please, you know, give us your thoughts and perspectives and stuff. And that may be sort of the philosophical break between those who prefer the sandbox and those who prefer it uh, out in the namespace, but I would definitely agree with what Phil said about the distinction between controversial articles and non-controversial articles. You know, if I'm writing about the Paragorio, it's not like there's a horde of Balzac aficionados who are like, hey, we demand that you include this perspective or whatever it is. Um, so, okay, we've got we've done a lot of research, we've got notes, we've got a draft, we've got something that we're relatively satisfied with in terms of doing the initial research and the first round of writing. What's the next step? Should we take it to a good article? I a lot of times leave Take it, it to peer review first. Well, Go ahead, Phil. It, it depends on your perspective. Some people, like Moni, say she goes to peer review and then to good article and maybe to FA. And I know this is a big focus for Awadawit. I mean, she produces a tremendous amount of featured content. I, on the other hand, I'm not that wild about the, um, the peer. I've only done peer review a little bit and good article couple of times and featured article a couple of times. I'm not that wild about that process. I'm I'm not really writing that much for uh, a claim by outsiders. I'm I'm writing to learn something myself and so I feel good about it. I maybe I've got too much of an ego. I think I can judge it better than anybody else. So so uh, when I'm happy with it, I'm happy to leave it because I feel I've I've presented the best Thing that I can, and I'm happy with it. I've learned something, and then I move on to the next one. Um, I, I'm but not, Phil, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I have to ask. I mean, what about your ego? Isn't there some element of your contributions here that you feel has to be honored in the form of a, a barn star or a little green plus icon? Well, I have a lot of bar, barn stars, um, but you know, to me, 
you know, I guess maybe this is the thing of having a fairly extensive background in, in academic uh, research and writing already. Um, it, let me... Okay, I, I'll try to remember. The, there's a guy, he was at a uh, UK... Uh, I've got the got it in my notes somewhere, the quote. It was about 100 years ago. He, he was teaching a, a course, I think it was in ethics or philosophy at one of the UK universities, said, gentlemen... Uh, the main purpose of, a, of this course or a university education is so you can tell when somebody else is, uh, is uh, talking complete rot. And he, he all, there's a, a sort of a, a similar quote that said, the main reason to get a PhD or to get you know, an advanced education is so that you're not impressed by anyone else who has one because you realize that most of the other people <laughs> like that are, are morons. And so after you've gone, done this for a long time, you kind of get a kind of a thicker hide, sort of, to a certain extent. And maybe you've got to have a huge ego to go to that tremendous amount of extent of getting all the advanced degrees. And so I don't, I don't really care that much about about getting barn stars in uh, in these areas. I mean, I mainly work in areas in which I'm not an expert in because I'm just trying to learn. And I know I don't know a dang thing about biology. And I'm just trying to learn a little bit about biology and make something pleasing to myself. And if it's got a, a GA status, well, you know, what do I care about somebody who's maybe a high school student or maybe a college student giving me a GA or maybe even somebody with a bachelor's degree who's working as an accountant? I don't care if they give me a GA. And when I've gone through the FA process, for the most part, I've been very unimpressed with the reviewers, to be honest. I mean, maybe that just sounds like I'm really conceited, but and maybe I am. But I just, I just roll my eyes when I see the remarks of some of these, uh, some of my fellow editors and their suggestions. I'm not saying everybody, because there are some people I have tremendous respect for, and they were are the people I will invite in for private reviews, like Awa Dewitt. I'll invite in, and uh, there's several others. For example, Silence is another one. Um, Orange Marlin, in certain cases. These are people I really know. They've got expertise in some area, and I'll invite them in, and they will do almost invariably. They will. I'll learn something from them, and they'll improve the article drastically. Um, but the average well, run-of-the-mill drive-by editor, no. Go ahead. Let, let's talk oh, about what? the benefits we can get from from some sort of peer review. Because, I mean, I, for example, I don't expect that if I submit an article about Jane Austen to the peer review, I'm going to get some Austen scholar <laughs> right. who's going to come by and say, well, why didn't you include, you know, more about Edward Said's post-colonial reading of Mansfield Park? You know, I, I really don't expect that that's going to happen. And, it, and I hope to God, actually, that it doesn't descend into some, you know, you know, war between Austin scholars wanting to include more about this view or more. Actually, that would be terrible if that happened. You know, it would be really bad. But one of the things I'm always interested in when I go to peer review is if the average reader can understand what I wrote. Yeah. Because, you know, I'm used to writing for a scholarly audience. I am not really used to writing for the average reader. And if the average reader comes by, if that high school student comes by, if that college student comes by and can't understand what I've written about Austin or Shelley or Wollstonecraft, then I failed in writing an encyclopedia entry for the general public. So that's always one of 
the questions I have, for example, when I go to peer review, did I convey what literary scholars often write in really obscure language, <laughs> you know, in a way that people can understand um, these these works and these authors? So that's often that's a- one of the things I'm really looking for. And that's something Willow's brought up in terms of mathematical articles. Like when she did Problem of, of Polonius, she was like, you know, hey, does it make sense to you who is, you know, I'm, a, I'm really illiterate when it comes to math. And so she was, you know, trying to make sure that it really fit and that I could understand it. And and uh, I think there's a point in certain math articles where there's a level where I'm just never going to reach it. And I'm just the wrong person to ask about that. Um, Mona, you said that peer review is going to be your next step after you've got a first draft done. Why, why would you send it to peer review first instead of GA first? Actually, on the articles that I post for, directly from my um, uh, from my uh, box, my sandbox, I will put it for peer review and GA at the, on the same day, uh, and hope that I will get in-depth reviews from uh, from different people. And I'm hoping to get as wide as an audience as possible. From peer review, it could be basically anyone who trips along and sees the the article. It could be somebody who's got the article watch listed and sees that peer review is now on, on the, the talk page. Even the GA review is on the talk page. And I hope to be able to find anybody anybody who's interested in reading it who can say, I don't understand this part. I don't understand what you're trying to say here. Uh, I don't understand why this part is important. Why is it significant? Why is this in the article? And that usually means that I haven't I haven't explained myself very well or I haven't explained the, uh, the topic very well. In the terms of a G- GA review, you get somebody who hopefully is very um, – experienced in reading a lot of articles who will be a little bit more conscientious on the article's totality uh, and be able to say if it qualifies uh, as a GA. And hopefully by now I know what the the characteristics of a GA are. I really do hope that I do. Um, But uh, you also get somebody who has a lot more experience than perhaps somebody who trips along and finds the article. I mean, you can get anonymous IP users making comments during a, uh, a peer review, which are just as valid as uh, anybody who has spent a couple years uh, watching the article. Uh, and then you get somebody who has a lot of experience reading different types of articles, the good, long, well-researched articles who can make comments on your notes, on your citations, on your images, and give you a perspective that you just haven't thought of before. And really, for, for peer review, that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for somebody else's perspective to come in and say, um, um, I, I read it, uh, this is what I thought about it, and I don't understand why you did it this way. Well, I only work on okay. areas... Okay, so... Go ahead, Phil. I was going to say, I only work on articles in which I know nothing, almost nothing about them, like medical articles or... Uh, or history or what have you. So things that I'm not trained in, I'm not an expert in, I avoid, for the most part, areas in which I I know something about. And so I think there's much less chance of me writing something incomprehensible because I know in my own area I can write stuff that that, uh, is well beyond what the average reader and the average, even the average expert uh, will be able to read because I do it all the time. And, in fact, that's part of the goal, of course, in, of writing, technical writing when you're writing in your own area because you're writing for a very specialized group with a very specialized audience in mind. Like, uh, I'll give an example. When I wrote Bees and Toxic Chemicals, I mean, I don't know anything about apiary or bees or what have you. And uh, these different types of chemicals never took biochemistry. Um, but I just thought it was interesting. I'd heard a book review of somebody who'd written a book that was somewhat related, and so I got kind of excited about it. I wanted to see what I could find out about it. 
instead of going to a peer review or a GA, what I did is I then went to the wiki projects that are concerned with bees and toxic chemicals, and I invi invited people that are real entomologists and real beekeepers, about five or six of them, and they looked at my stuff and said, oh my gosh, you're an amateur and you're, you're an idiot. Uh, you know, this is, you know you know, get me a reference for this. Where on earth did you get that nonsense? This is badly, badly uh, stated. And it didn't bother me a bit. Whereas in my own area, if I'm dealing with people that are high school students that are telling me I'm an idiot, um, I'm not, I, I, I don't like that very much. My friends that are doctors and write medical articles to have morons telling them they don't know anything about medicine and the guy's a specialist in area X or Y, it doesn't go over very big. But I don't care if I'm told I'm an idiot about bees because I know I'm an idiot about bees. That's why I wrote the article. I'm trying to learn a little tiny bit about bees. And if an entomologist says, well, this is a complete load of nonsense, well, great, let's rewrite it. After that was done, and that's sort of like a peer, well, it's, not, it's a focused peer review because I chose selectively the experts just like I did with falsifiability. I chose specific people that I knew mm -hmm. from having been on Wikipedia. I knew where to find experts who could actually do a focused review and make sure that I hadn't said anything really stupid, being an amateur writing it. And then, then at, at that point, somebody actually uh, put it up for GA for me and it went right through to GA without much problem. But uh, that wasn't really mm -hmm. my goal. Yeah. Uh, I did it kind of the opposite way right. around, and it's because of the type of articles I focus on. Yeah, you know, I'll say from my perspective as a you know public school English teacher, you know, the, the GA and FA process, you know, if nothing else, I, I find that it, it gives the general audience some sort of indication that there has been some sort of semi-formal review process that has taken place with an article. That is to say, you know, if a student of mine is researching a basketball player and I'm, they're reading the Wikipedia article, obviously I tell them, okay, this is just a starting point. You have to go to these other sources and so forth and so on. But um, I, I can get a sense of, you know, whether the article has been just filled with, you know, fan crust or if there is, you know, actually there's been a GA review. I can look at, you know, okay, that green icon gives me some sort of indication that there's been, like I say, a bit of a review process, and the FA star is even more of that. So I think that's where it, it serves as a little bit of usefulness for me. Well, I would um, also like to point out that uh, reviews also help me a lot with prose. Yeah. I mean, you need other people to look at your writing. You know, one person isn't going to produce a brilliantly written article, and we talked about that before on the copy editing podcast. But reviews, whether they're at peer review or GAN, um, help me a lot with prose, and specifically people who take out sentence by sentence by sentence. So, you know, the ones that don't make sense or are illogical or you know ungrammatical. Um, that really helps me. Because, you know, you just are going to miss things. You're just going to miss things. You're not going to get everything. And so, sure. you know, for me, that's extremely helpful part of the of the sort of feedback process, wherever you're getting it done. Right. So in terms of, you know, yeah, getting the most from feedback, uh, we had talked a little bit earlier, what about you and I, and, and, you know, I know I've mentioned this with Moni, that it's so important, I think, when you're putting something up for peer review to – at that point, you know, the, the question of ownership has to be key in your mind and the recognition that you are now in receptive mode. I think it's so important for us to go from, especially, and it's tricky if you've done, you know, if I do a month of research on Chino Achebe and then I put it out there and suddenly someone says, oh, well, what about this other thing? I don't want to hear them talking about that because I've just made myself the expert in spending a month researching this thing. It's hard for me to put that in check, but I think that's when it becomes so important to do so because, 
like you said, then is when you're getting that outside point of view. And Phil, your point about you know hearing from experts in the field, absolutely, you've got to be able to be deferential and say, okay. You have studied this a lot longer than I have, or at the very least, you know, this is something that you think is important, and, and I have to be able to look at that and say, okay, yeah, we need to incorporate that in the article. What is best for the article at that point? I mean, there are instances, and of course I don't edit in these areas, but there are two or three fields in which I am among the handful of world experts in the field, and I don't edit those articles just because I don't want people to tell me nonsense. <laughs> I don't want to hear it. Whereas in 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 uh, see that is just really too bad. I don't care. Um, This is this is is too bad. You know, I have had people tell me that you know what I've written on Mary Wollstonecraft is wrong. You know, whatever. I've actually read about Mary Wollstonecraft for several years. I'm not a worldwide expert on Mary Wollstonecraft, but I have read almost everything that's been written about her now. You know, and someone who comes along and looks something up on Google Books for five seconds. They don't actually know what they're talking about. Yep. And it is extremely frustrating to have to explain to people over and over again, no, I, I do know what I'm talking about. I have read everything that's here, you know, in this bibliography. And, you know, and to have to do that over and over again, actually people who get tired of that. It's people who know tiring. what they're talking about do get tired of it. And that is, I think, part of the, the sort of anti-elitism that people talk about that exists on Wikipedia. And it's hard to deal with. It really is hard to deal with. I don't mind the people who are like, oh, yeah, I see what you're talking about, whatever. The, but the people who stick with it, yep. who insist that they're right over and over and over again, it just makes you want to leave articles and, and leave peer reviews and whatever because you're just like, whatever. Well, what's the point of this? You know? That's right. It's just I very mean, frustrating. When I'm dealing with very comments – comments like I'd get from my students or my interns, when I deal with comments from people like that <laughs> or, uh, or you know, sort of uh, uh, technical managers of, of organizations I've been a, a member of that are just basically, they're adept in related areas but not in my specific area, you know, and I get retarded questions like that over and over and over again. It just um, no, I don't want to deal with it. Forget it. I, I can't be bothered. Whereas if I go in an area like I'm working on prions or lactose intolerance, I don't know anything about lactose intolerance. I think it's kind of interesting. I don't know anything about prions or prions. I don't know if you call them prions or prions. Anyway, those weird folded proteins. I don't know anything about it. I'd like to know something more about them. I don't know anything about genetics. I'd like to know more about it. And so I go in. I learn something. And then I call in the experts, and I've got no problem with an expert taking the time out to teach me and say, well, you got this completely wrong. Uh, You're a complete fool here. And that's great, because I know I'm a fool, and I've got no problem with that whatsoever. In my own area, no, I don't want somebody that clearly is um, like somebody way, way below me um, telling me that I've got it wrong. I don't want to hear from them. Sorry. And, um, and I think it has a lot to do with, you know, you know our intentions and what we're – go ahead. Yeah, I think it has to do with what the the, the you know the, the intentions that we come to the projects with because I think there are clearly going to be people who come to the project who who aren't assuming good faith, who aren't willing to take – uh, you know, an understanding of the fact that somebody has done all this research or that somebody, yeah, does know exactly what they're talking about. And, and, you know, this comes down to the question of where we get our credentials from and what is a bona fides when you're, when you're doing this sort of research. Um, but that people see, I think some people, you know, some users look at Wikipedia as being this open thing that anybody can edit and therefore they make a leap of judgment that then says, which anybody has 
the same level of understanding to edit in the same way. So that there, there's ostensibly for some users this leveled playing field in terms of your, you know, intellectual contributions that can and should be made to certain areas. And it leads to, like you said, things about, you know, people saying, oh, you don't know what you're talking about because, yeah, I did five seconds of Google research. And it can be hard to, you know, assume good faith as, you know, Phil, you did the whole AGF challenge thing. And, and it's, it's, it can be really tricky sometimes. And when you're trying to understand, you know, and, 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 and appreciate where someone's coming from, but at the same time, you know that they don't know what they're talking about, and you do, and you don't want to let your ego get in the way, you don't want to own things, and I don't know, Moni, any thoughts about this whole process of uh, keeping yourself open but not wasting your time with meaningless feedback? Well, a lot of it has to do with how emotionally invested you are with an article, and I've been accused more than once of being too emotionally invested with an article, which, you know, has, has to, when you spend, you know, lots of money on, on sources and you, uh, spend a lot of time reading about a subject, of course you're emotionally invested in it. I spent all this time writing it, I spent all this time reading about it, and clearly I care about this. I want to tell the story. I want it to be a very, very good story. I want people to learn about this. In fact, not only do I want people to learn about it, but since Wikipedia is so widely used, I want this to be the best outlet of this information available because it's free. And then people come along and say that you're too emotionally invested. And yeah, in, in some cases I've seen people who are too emotionally invested and they cannot listen to other people or they just completely refuse to listen to other people's input. And there is, it's right, you do have to at some point say, I have to do this for the sake of the article. And at some point you also have to use your own good judgment to say, this is what the sources say, I have to go with the sources. Uh, and um, it sometimes it's not very, it's not pleasant to get challenged like that. Uh, but, um, you know, y'all, Y'all, you always have to find your own line and where to say you're going to hold your ground or you're going to say that, yeah, you have a point and I have to listen to you. Yeah, and I would say, you know, from my perspective, when, when I was working on the East Timor article, there was this big question of conflict of interest because I work with an East Timor ag- advocacy group. But, you know, the point for me is that, and this is like why I went into teaching, for instance, like I'm a believer that, you know, good things in the world will happen when people have information about a topic. And for me, it's about access to information. And, you know, so if I'm in, writing an article about what happened in East Timor, I'm doing it because I want the story to be told, and I'm not afraid to let information that does doesn't fit with my own personal political perspective into the article because that won't detract from the overall truth about what happened, and that's ultimately the key point. And I think that's probably fair to say, you know, many of the articles you've written about, you know, Stonewall or Harvey Milk or whatever it is, you know, th- there is, I think, a point of view, you know, if, if I were – a creationist. I don't want to speak on the behalf of creationists, but it seems like you know a situation where I might be you know hesitant to you know w- allow certain things into an article because it might undercut my perspective. But I think folks who have you know who who, who do have that you know ultimate goal of everybody having access to information and then letting people make up their own minds, um, we, we're willing to let other perspectives in because it's not going to hurt the overall understanding, and the understanding is what's really important. Now, one thing I was just noticing in the chat, Moni says, I sent invitations out to six organizations about the Everglades, and no one responded, unfortunately. Were those on Wiki, or were they outside of Wiki? Moni? I emailed, um, I emailed the University of Florida, um, uh, in, well, IFAS uh, extension in Belle Glade, Florida, and uh, five organizations who 
are dedicated to preserving the Everglades, to ask them to come read the articles, give comments, and tell me where I've been inaccurate. And um, uh, I got a couple of emails saying, yes, I'd like to do that, but no one actually followed up saying, you need to um, you need to change something, or I got no reviews back. So these were um, email um, invitations that I sent out. Interesting, because I... unfortunate. I mean, it, it could serve as a starting point for them to be involved in the project as a whole. Go ahead, Phil. Yeah, I was going to say I, I've tried that. Uh, I, I'm kind of unclear, and maybe you guys could give me some input. I'm kind of unclear if this is frowned on. I think it's kind of frowned on by the Wicked community, but maybe not. Uh, in the case of a couple of BLPs and, and a couple of organizations where one or two um, central people are involved, and I've been... I've written the article or cleaned up the article. I have actually then contacted them by email, just like Moni did. I've contacted them and said, take a look at this. Did I get it right? Do you think I've screwed this up, or, or what's your impression? And I kind of got the impression that was that was frowned on. And in all cases where I've contacted them privately, I don't even know if I should say who it is, uh, they, they, uh, they said, well, you got this wrong a little bit, but could you add this little bit here? Uh, this is inaccurate. Here's the reference you're looking for, not that one, um, and, and what have you. And we've actually had a good interchange, and I think it's improved the article in the three or four cases that, uh, that I've uh, known. I don't know if what do you think is that frowned on what what's your impression I think it, it's a it's a case by case situation from where I sit I mean you know there there's something to be said for you know getting information from somebody who uh yeah you know has specific details about you know in their case their own life or whatever it is I think the main concern people would have is that there's a danger that there's going to be some sort of covert behind the scenes and especially if it's non-transparent um you know shifting of the article or inclusion of certain sources exclusion of other sources that will make the subject look better look worse you know look a certain way push a certain POV um so I would say the most important thing is to make it as transparent as possible so that there's no concerns about that you know shady happenings behind the scenes um but you know i think there's also a, a great value in that like for instance when i was doing the harriet tubman article uh one of the women who wrote uh one of the books about harriet tubman actually was contributing to wikipedia and like it was great to have her there and saying you know this is what the research does show and and you know it, it sort of there were worries about we were getting into original research there but um it was also a great way for us to you know sort of verify things and respond to people who said oh well, you know what about this and that um moni did you have something about um Ann Bannon or Marjorie Stoneman Douglas? Yeah, um, actually, Ann Bannon was my first featured article, and of course, as soon as um, as soon as I posted it, I told her about it. But that's at that point, it was my first written article. So um, let anybody who is reading this not go back and take a look at how bad that was. But <laughs> it has hopefully grown in quality, and she goes back she and I actually have um, gotten uh, uh, and, a, uh, an email, and um, I've met her a couple times. We have an email correspondence, and she's actually now quite friendly with me, and I'm stunned, and uh, it's, a, it's a very, very good relationship, and I'm very pleased with it. But I've also contacted other people who are tangentially related in some way to some of my other articles, including Daniel Nicoletta, whose photographs I used in the Harvey Milk article and who worked in Harvey Milk's shop in the 1970s and who's, who has read the article and remarked about it, uh, said made some changes. I wrote a good article about Barbara Giddings, 
who was a gay activist in the 1950s and 60s and uh, whose surviving partner I uh, wrote to and who calls me and edits over the phone telling me what I've gotten inaccurate and, um, you know, it's humbling a little bit. And then you're, okay, well, I guess i got to change it. Even though, you know, you get your own understanding, this is why I, I talk to other people. Hopefully they'll be able to tell me when I'm wrong because, you know, you get one understanding, oh, you get that, and you put it in the article and find out, nope, you're wrong. I also contacted a professor uh, at the University of Florida who wrote about Marjorie Stoneman Douglas and who pointed out that one of Douglas's own sources was incorrect. It was an uh, audio interview that she gave, and she gave co- uh, a year for her work in the Coconut Grove black community that was t- off by 20 years. Uh, and, uh, of course, she was like 90-something old, years old at the time, so I, I'm going to give her some slack from that. <laughs> but still, I mean, you, ha- you have to realize that even your primary sources aren't going to be perfect when you're using them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, uh, we're running a little long. I just wanted to move us along a little bit to talk about we've gotten a lot of responses, reviews. Um, we're interested in submitting it for featured article candidacy. What do we need to make sure we do before we actually take the step of initiating the FAC? Why do we want you to start with that? Well, I think one of the things that people forget to do um, in their excitement uh, to submit for FAC is check to the manual style. Uh, I was always recommending this to people at um, GA um, when I was reviewing their articles and suggesting they take it to FAC. I always said to them, give yourself a few days to read to the manual style and go through the article and, you know, just focusing on the manual style. Because a lot of reviewers, for better or for worse, will start looking at an article and if they see a lot of, you know, problems with manual style, they'll just be like, well, this isn't ready because these small things aren't ready. And so you don't want to give anyone a reason to not read all the way through your article and look at everything. So just make sure all those tiny little things are taken care of, you know, that the dashes are taken care of, that all the citations are, you know, formatted in the same way, all of these small things, you know. Especially if it's your first one. You know, when I, I, I – my first featured article was about Honoré de Balzac, and I was – I think it's a really interesting look at how – not to take articles through uh, because I was – my own faults are the reason. Um, fortunately, I was lucky enough to get Awadawit to review my article at the GA stage, and she failed it the first time through. And I, I'm glad she did. It was worth failing. It was not ready to be a good article, and it made me go back and do the work that I needed to do at the first stages, and then – you know, I was so eager to get it to featured article status because I felt like I was really actually contributing something worthwhile to Wikipedia after all this time, and I needed to be patient. I needed to, as she said, go through the MOS. I needed to go through and, and check it and, and double-check the pros and have different people take a look at it. And, and I think, you know, I asked about Ego before, Phil, and, and I think the reason it's so important to me is because I know from personal experience that my Ego blinded me uh, – against doing what was best for the article because I was so enthusiastic to get this little star thing. And I understand, you know, I I still consider it tremendously thrilling when I can get, you know, a star, a featured article, whatever it is. But I think in the long run, the best way to work on this sort of thing is to take your time, to be patient, to give people days, even a week to respond. And the other thing I would say is, you know, I'll be pompous here and say it, but, you know, I consider my writing 
skill to be pretty decent, and I do solicit people to copy edit and peer review and stuff, and fortunately people catch my boneheaded mistakes, but I would say if you have any hesitation at all about your the quality of your writing in terms of you know punctuation, use or sentence structure, whatever it is, to get a copy edit before it goes to FAC, because you, as Wadowitz says, you will save yourself so many headaches, and you know the frustration of having somebody oppose a featured article candidacy is really annoying. And so, while it is also annoying to wait and you know get people to do copy edits, and you know Balzac actually said something about how devastated he was when an editor found all these mistakes and what he had written. But in the long term, you know that's going to save you heartache and trouble if you get that stuff taken care of before you start the FAC process, because the clock is ticking. As soon as you put it up, there's ten there's pressure, people are busy with a million things, they don't have time to come back and look at what changes you've made, and if you can take your time and do all that stuff beforehand, it really in the long run is a much better process. Yeah, I had this article, this History of a Six Weeks Tour article by Mary Shelley that I knew was not written as well as it, it could have been. I mean, just for some reason, I could not write this article as well as I had written the other articles on the works of Mary Shelley that I'd done so far, and I was like desperate to find a copy editor. Everybody was busy. You know, because it was the beginning of the, the school year, and I guess the other people are busy at that time as well. And I think, in fairness to you, that article—I mean, that that text—is a particular, you know, agglomeration of things that. Yeah, it's a hard one to write about. about. It. I yeah, mean, exactly. it's, it's just a hard text to write about. But I knew that. I knew that the the article was structured strangely, and that people were having trouble with the structure. I was just rearranging it constantly. And by and, necessity, you had to go through and do it that way. Yeah. Yeah. So, right. but I mean, I knew I knew these problems existed, and so even though it was taking me a much longer time to write this article and take it through the various reviews that I that I take things through before I take it to FAC, I knew it would be a bad idea to take it to FAC before I had gotten. Many many other people to look at the prose because I knew exactly how this very strange uh, work of literature had been written and what it was made of and everything. But I, I just somehow could not convey this. Right. I mean, I everybody that... was confused reading it. And so I knew it just wasn't ready. It was just absolutely not ready. And even though I've like taken, well, I don't know, how like 25 or 20 or something, I don't know, <laughs> other featured articles through, mm -hmm. I knew it wasn't ready because I was like, there's just no way. There's no way people are going to read this and say, oh, yes, this is brilliant prose. We understand exactly what you're saying. You know, I just knew it. I could tell. I could tell. You might get some support votes just for the fact that you've written so many other feature <laughs> articles. I read I, the I, article. Yeah, of course. It doesn't matter, though. It's an Iwanawood article. I want to be the first one to support her article. But I think that speaks to the importance of being self-aware when you're doing this sort of work and knowing your own limitations and knowing – like, you know, when I was working on Emmy Nother, I had no clue about the math. And even after trying really hard to understand it, I reached a point where I was like, okay, geometry guy, Willow, it's your baby. Like, I have no idea what I'm doing. And that level of self-awareness – and I'm trying to promote myself – but, but I think it's so important that people I, – I see so many editors who don't seem to have that self-awareness, who seem so convinced that what they've done is just the gospel and it's perfect and it's ready that people need to slow down and say, okay, where am I really at? Where is this work really at? And wh who's, whose hell do I need to enlist? Phil, what, do you have a, a comment you wanted to make? Yeah, I was going to also mention something else that I've noticed. This is one of the most frustrating things I've ever encountered because I've helped with a few FACs, uh, of friends' FACs. Um, in particular in uh, paleontology. And I know a little bit about paleontology, but not too much. I, it's not a, a professional expertise of mine at all, although I did have to take cla a class or two that kind of touched on it. Um, and, you know, I have a mild knowledge of it, just uh, ba basically slightly better than the average person. Uh, and we would have the thing come up for 
for uh, FAC, and we I've seen this several times now, where we, people would come by and they'd say, well, you know, I'm a graduate student in this area, or I've got a PhD in this area, and uh, this is all complete garbage, but I don't have time to tell you what's wrong, and I can't tell you what references to look in. <laughs> and you get four or five or six people go by and say that, and they say, well, this is not suitable for FAC. It's all it's all trash. You've you've got the wrong interpretation. And you know, the rest of us, I mean, we're experts in other areas, and I'm in, over in mathematical physics, and somebody else is in chemistry, and somebody else is in in medicine. And we're trying to do the best job we can in this area, this thing in paleontology. And here, paleontolo- real professional paleontologists or geologists are coming by telling us it's garbage, but we can't tell you what references to look at. We can't tell you why it's garbage. We can't be bothered. We don't have time. All we can tell you is it's trash. Well, that's very frustrating. Well, that's tell you. silly. I mean, if they really are experts, they can point to sources. I mean, any time that something comes up that's, you know vaguely related to what I do in the 18th century, I can easily get to sources. I mean, sometimes it's difficult because, like, um, even when, um, say, like, the Candide article was up, that's 18th century literature, but it's French literature, which is actually a totally different field. But I can still find enough stuff where I can say, you know what, I'm pretty sure this article doesn't cover the major things, right? Because I know at least, you know, basic books to look at, and I can find that out. So someone who really is an expert would have no trouble. They would and, have no And should trouble. take the time. I think, yeah, from my perspective, you know, if you're if you're going to weigh in, and this is one of the reasons I don't really weigh in on very many facts, even after I've read the whole article, is because I don't feel like I have the time to go through and say, like, this is specifically what I have in mind. And I think it, in some cases it's worse to say there's huge problems that need fixing than it is to – and not give any follow-up than it is to just sort of you know sit back and maybe say, you know, like, well, it needs fixing, but I, I can't go through it and, and give that at this point. Yeah. Moni, do you have something you wanted to talk about in terms of the – oh, Phil, go ahead. I was just going to add also on the – Just to respond to what I was saying? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, having studied French, uh, uh, Voltaire was one of my favorite authors, and I have read it once in the English and about five times in the French and written papers on it and so on. And so I know Candide fairly well, or at least used to, a number of years ago. And when I read the article, I haven't gone back to it, but when it was up for FAC, I read it and I said, oh my gosh, they missed this, they missed this, they missed this. Because I could remember, even from many, many years later, that, you know, what the subject was and the, some of the debates and so on and so forth um, in the, um, in the re, you know, the basically the review literature where people were studying Candide. And I thought, well, you know, I could write, you know, a four or five page um, description of the problems with this. And, but, you know, I w- didn't feel comfortable just to write a short. I could have written a short note, just a paragraph and say, hey, this is trash, but I don't have the time to tell you right now why it's trash or <laughs> what it's deficient in. Mm-hmm. So I didn't. I have, and I still mean to at some point, I think it made FAC, to write this up carefully. Yeah. In, in detail, and then right. put it out for consideration of the main authors and say, take a look at this. Here are things that I think, if they still are deficient, I know if it's, I don't know if it still is. Here's why I think it's deficient, right. and that is more of a, yeah. that's more of a, a respectful thing to do, a more uh, a helpful, mm-hmm. helpful type of contribution rather than just do a drive-by 
drive-by comment and say, well, it's trash, but, you know, I'm working on something else or I'm right. busy in real life. I can't, I can't Yeah, I don't think that, that those drive-by things are helpful. I still wish you posted that FAC because, you know, the only thing I can find out about Candide, like in these short amounts of time, is very limited. But I would yeah. like to point out that actually a lot of reviewers do research. Mm -hmm. I'm not mm -hmm. sure whether nominators realize this, yeah. but yeah. in order to make a, a, an assessment often of whether an article is comprehensive or not, oftentimes the reviewers have to do research. So, you know, I spent a day or so, I think, researching Candide, you know, to mm -hmm. figure out whether I think this is basically comprehensive. And from what I could tell in like a day or two, it seemed to be, you know, eventually, I think after like, I don't know how many GA reviews we went mm -hmm. through with that article. And then finally at FAC, we got to a point where I thought it was apparently it's not but how can i tell you know after like a day but that's yeah. the thing is i actually do put time into doing research when i'm reviewing i did the same thing with the roman catholic church article when i reviewed it i actually spent um i don't know how many days in the library with that one you know looking at books and putting quotes on the talk page and stuff and so this is actually one of the the complaints i think that maybe nominators don't understand how much time goes into reviewing and so a, when a conscious review, because yeah, there's all kinds of reviews, yeah. of course. Well, like the drive-by drive ones that we're yes. saying, those right. are pointless those and not even helpful. really, I don't think, and taken into consideration. The you know. Yeah, they're not helpful. And I don't think right. they're taken into consideration. They but, you know, any... people who spend a lot of time on it, for then, for then um, nominators to really just sort of, you know – get angry at the nominator or at the at the reviewers and refuse to take into consideration their points or whatever. It it just doesn't really make you want to review. And that's why right. I think there's such a huge turnover at FACE. Yeah. Huge. I agree. I, just and if we're talking about Candida, I just really need to say to you know RMRF Star had really put in a lot of work and oh, and know. such persistence. That was the thing that impressed me the most, you know. I don't know if I would have been able to keep up with that article because it I was so, so it required bad. so much. I mean, it's such a important work. It's like doing an article about, you know, Shakespeare or something. It's 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 such a quintessential, you know, text that is that there's so much a, to be said about it. He doesn't know anything about literature. I mean, uh, right, I, right. it says on his user page that he's specifically like going through all the disciplines to learn about them by writing oh, okay. wiki articles about them. Yeah. So like so yeah. like what Phil's doing like learning about things by right. writing about them. I was yeah. amazed that he took on Candide yeah. because it's and such, such a tenacity. I think I, it's yeah. really thank goodness it did finally pass FAC because I I can imagine him like it has to pass this time. Mona, you wanted to make a point about uh, the evolution of a community and and making articles better. Yeah, we have a set of standards uh, that uh, change daily. There is no tradition. That's a good point to make. There is no tradition at Wikipedia because it's so new. And the standards for good featured articles change, and hopefully they get better and higher uh, with every week, with every new uh, really exceptional article that's put through. I hope with film articles that they start going into a lot more scholarly journals. I hope with video game articles they start getting into some, you know, some, some more esoteric issues, and uh, I think that's a that's a that's a very important point to make. And like Scartel, I had a, an experience with a, a book very much like Candide that I was um, I thought I I just it should be featured. It should be one of these featured articles. And the first time I brought it to, to FAC, it failed, and mostly because of a lot of it. And I was I was angry at the time God, because I think I fail everything all the time. <laughs> Silence. No, I think we agree though Silence. that you fail things that need to be failed at the time. Uh, the, yeah, that was that was my point. Uh, and she wrote recently uh, on my talk page, "Gee, I hate to be picky." And I read that and I went, "No, you don't." <laughs> 
I know she doesn't <laughs> I hate to be picky, but then that's why uh, my article writing has gotten so much better. Because when I was looking at literature FAs uh, as guides at the time, most of them have gone through featured article review to be delisted. Uh, and I did not have a, a lot of good guides to, to use. So in, in taking a look at um, the, the standards of what you're trying to get through featured article, you have to re- have an open mind to, to you just say, you know, if another similar similar article did not go through the kind of uh, hoops you had to go through, then that means the next one that's going to come after it will have to go through it and be even better. And uh, the ability to make the articles of higher, better quality has to be, um, we have to allow for that, not only as, as featured article writers, but as reviewers as well. We should strive for that. I would like to point out that I was actually like one of the reasons that I keep writing featured articles. Phil um, said that, you know, really what's the point of having a featured article and that he as an academic doesn't need that or whatever. I don't either, but I think Wikipedia does. I think think Wikipedia, Wikipedia for example, really needs quality featured literature articles. When I got here, a lot of the literature articles, I have to say, were not very good. I mean, the, the featured articles that were about literature, a lot of them were missing whole sections on, like, themes and genre. It's like it's as if none of the reviewers knew they should be there. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, it was really sort of amazing to me. <laughs> well, we still I, have trouble with that, yeah, yes, especially, uh, like, in film articles and stuff. So, but uh, that's one of the problems with actually referring back to previous articles that have been passed. So oftentimes I'll see people say, oh, but I model this on Lord of the Rings. Right. But the Lord of the Rings article passed a long time ago, and it doesn't have a lot of that information on, like, you know, themes and genre. There isn't, like, a whole section on how Lord of the Rings helped found the fantasy genre for whatever reason that's missing. But, yeah. um, you know, so you should always, I think, rather than trying to model yourself on something that came before, try to write, you know, the best article possible, you know, not – the one that matches the people who came before you. Or at least find the best example of that which came before you and say, okay, you know, yeah, this is going to serve as my model because it covers all of these important areas and so forth and so on. I would invite anybody. Uh, Phil, did you have something? Yeah, I was going to say I would invite anybody. Take a look at, uh, say, a GA from three years ago or an FA from two, three years ago and four years ago. Look at the evolution of standards for GA and FA. It, it Actually, this is mm-hmm. what you know, although you know, you can look at the average article and say, "Oh my gosh, 99 out of 100 articles are are garbage," or maybe it's 999 uh, articles out of a thousand are garbage, and the standards are quite low, which I think just what everybody would agree with. Uh, on the other hand, if you look at how each article changes and how the standards for GAs and FAs change with time, that is the really amazing miracle of Wikipedia and the heartening thing is what would pass for GA um, three years ago probably wouldn't pass for GA now. What would pass for FA three years ago probably wouldn't pass FA now. And things that have, you can look at FAs that haven't been touched for three, four years and they passed just fine four years ago and you look at it now and there's no way it would pass and many of them get delisted for that very reason even though people have hardly touched it in four years. And that's the evolution of these standards. It's really kind of impressive. 
Yeah, and I think that sort of rigor is really important. And I think, you know, we mentioned that Owatawit failed our, some of our articles. But I, like I said, again, I'm glad she did. And, like, you know, people give Tony a hard time. Like, I'm glad he's there. Like, I, you know, there's a need for us to sit, to have a bar. And I wouldn't, you know, looking back on the Balzac article, even, you know, I've said to Owatawit, I plan to go back and rewrite it at some point because I keep finding out more things. There's so many things that can be added that weren't. And I think there's a point at which um, – there, I wouldn't want my name on something that I thought was not a very good, you know, quality of work. So I think, it, you know, if you're if you're coming at it from a point similar to mine, like, you know, it has to do with the product that you are ultimately turning out. And you know, we talk about the evolution of human knowledge, like the availability of things. We should have stuff on Wikipedia that, as you said, is the best in the world. Not only because it's free, but also because it tends to, you know, they, the, didn't the foundation just say we were one of the top five websites in the world? And and I mean, if we're a place where so many people are going for their information about this stuff we should have the highest quality research writing etc etc I really think it's great that we rewrite FAs that they don't stay the same so like I rewrote the second half of the Mary Wilson craft article after I had written all the articles on her works because like you said I learned more you know and so I could write better descriptions of the works that tied them all together and so you know even though it already passed featured article, you know, and couldn't pass again, and I couldn't get another little star for you know Wikipedians <laughs> nominated by a featured or whatever that list is, um, you know, I still. <laughs> Which I we still, should point out that's the driving force behind Wattowitz's work. I, oh you yeah. admitted this to me at one point. So just because as I'm trying I to get the balls, that on my TV. Topic, that's yeah, exactly. going to get me a job, right? Because because I'm on number I'm number three on the list. You're going to be competing with Piotrus about yeah which job you get. <laughs> yeah. I have more stars than him. I get the job. Right. Yeah, <laughs> I do. I do the same. I go back and I, I find uh, books that weren't published at the time, or I find articles I didn't have access to, or even I find a way to get a hold of articles I didn't know I had access to. And even though the articles that I wrote were featured, I have to. I well, I, I make myself. I have to. I make myself do it. Make myself go back, and I'm. I'm. I uh, got a book from Interlibrary Loan about uh, racial issues in To Kill a Mockingbird, and I'm adding to it uh, as I read it. Uh, and um, I, I, as I read more about some of the other topics, and some of them are more timely, like uh, uh, restoration of the Everglades requires updating almost uh, once a month, and you have to adjust it. And, and even though they're featured, they're just not perfect, and they, they're, they can always use uh, some more love when you go, when you go back to them. Well, that's why you should choose topics about you know writers from the 19th century because nobody's writing about them anymore, so you don't have stuff ah. you have to keep at. I'm just kidding. There, I, I have a couple other questions that I wanted to throw out there, and we are getting into the sort of very long time frame here. But are there other topics that we had said we were going to discuss that we haven't yet? Anything people have on their mind they wanted to discuss? Before well, I jump we into could this talk other? about how to deal with the FAC. We talked about like what yeah. to do before to right, get right, right, right. Like you know the uh, manual style approach, but how to deal when uh, with opposes? Yeah. You know when when people oppose, what should you do? But, I mean there are rude reviewers. Oh yes. You know what should you do about it? How should you handle it? Let's well, well, be, be respectful. Go ahead, Moni. Be respectful always. Just even if somebody is really rude, you just say thank you for your review, and you can just uh, you can you can be better. You can be better and just say uh, I understand your concerns. Uh, I'm keeping the article this way, and this is why I'm keeping it this way. And hopefully, uh, Sandy Georgia and the other reviewers that come afterwards will read it uh, and uh, be able to to get a good sense that you know what you're talking about. And I think it's important for us to use our own judgment in, in, to a degree. You know, that is to say, if one person says, "Oh, this entire section needs to be deleted," 
you know, that's something that we might be able to say, okay, that person has a, an individual disagreement, whatever it is, how big of an issue are they going to make it? I think when four people say something needs to be removed or, you know, you need to make a revision this way or that way, then it takes it takes it to the next level. And uh, it's important for us to there, – there's there are questions we have to ask ourselves about, you know, what – recommendations do we say yes that's true that needs to be changed and which ones do we stand up and say you you know look i've read these five books and i don't think that it's fair to characterize it in that fashion um and then that that's where it gets tricky for me is that middle ground Phil, yeah i've actually something? oh i was gonna oh. say i was de- i had developed a sort of new uh policy about this for myself at fac i used to be a lot more combative and it didn't work for me very well you know i did i don't think i compromised as much as i i could have and um but now I've developed this sort of line in the sand philosophy, as I call it. Am I willing to draw a line in the sand over this issue that the person is bringing up? Am I willing to say this is a make or break it issue for me, essentially? And a lot of times I discover, you know what? No, this is not near. When I ask myself that in that manner, you know, I discover this is not nearly as important to me as I thought that it was. So, for example, um, I was reviewing the the article Romeo and Juliet, for example, um, and I don't, I personally do not feel that we need character lists um, in all Shakespeare play articles. Um, I think we need to consider what we're doing with the character list. But I've argued this issue with with the Shakespeare editors before, and we haven't really come to any consensus. And I thought to myself, do I think that this article, with all of the other positive things that are in it, should not be promoted? Because right. it has a character list. And I was like, no, that's just silly. You know, there's a lot in this article that's really very good. And because it has a character list does not mean, you know, I don't think it should be promoted. So I didn't bring that up in my review. I just didn't even bring it up. Sure. Phil, did you have something you want to throw in? Um, let me see. Oh, dear. Um, I guess not. So here's two other things I wanted to throw out there just for general information and, and grins and giggles. Uh Maybe I'd be interested to hear some sort of interesting experience you had, some sort of bizarre coincidence or, or some sort of synchronicitous moment uh, when doing some sort of research or maybe the most surprising thing you found when you were doing work for an FA or a GA or something um, that, that had to do with you know moving the article along, um, just you know for sake of trivia or interest. Moni, did you have any sort of synchronicitous moments or bizarre experiences when you were working on any of this stuff? Uh, well, maybe perhaps my uh, most bizarre experience was working on my most recent FA, which was Harvey Milk. And uh, to go along with uh, the co- complete polar opposite of what Iwata was just talking about, where you have to know when to give up, um, I had to uh, uncharacteristically put my heels in the sand and say, absolutely not will I allow this information in the article. This was about uh, because the church of this was some about, sort of... Yeah, this Jones was about Tem- Harvey Milk. Yeah, Harvey Milk's involvement with the People's Temple, uh, and it was um, it was put being put in there uh, and being given a section that was uh, put way too much undue weight on it. And um, I'm I'm a very laid back editor, and if you know if I'm reading an article or I'm watching an article and ten other uh, editors are, are saying it should be one way, I'll usually say yeah, well you know okay I'm cool with it whatever. But when it involves such a blatant inaccuracy that um, it really is not reflective of the, the amount of reliable sources and um, it's really taken 
out of context to an extreme. And this was a, a, a single-purpose editor who edited only articles on um, Jonestown and the People's Temple, who saw it as a as a as a way to get that information in there because he he thought it was because it was about Jim Jones, then it was extremely important. When looking at the context of the history of San Francisco, it really was not. Um, and it was I went to the uh, administrators notice board uh, incident page twice. Uh, I went to the um, fringe theory notice board. Um, I went to mediation about this, and eventually it was honed down to eight words. And uh, I it was an extraordinarily unpleasant experience for me. But um, you know, some people will say that I'm really sheltered, which I am because I, I do that on purpose. But um, it was still you know, very unpleasant to have to deal with this. Somebody was someone's really tenacious, but tenacious about not really knowing what should go into a featured article. Yeah. Phil, any kind of experiences like that? Weird things that you noticed or yeah, good or bad well, experiences along the path? Well, yeah, of course, some of them are captured in my AGF challenge, but let me lay a couple on you. Uh, those ones are all sort of um, sort of fictionalized there in the AGF challenge, so you can't quite tell what I'm referring to. But I'll tell you a couple of real ones. So when I was doing uh, bees and toxic chemicals, which went to GA, and a lot of people say should go to F.A., I might rewrite it and try for F.A., is after uh, what I what I did in that instance, because I, I was just interested in it, uh, it was sort of like a collection of trivia. And people said, well, how are you all going, how are you going to tie all this stuff together into one coherent article? And I thought about it for a while, and I, I, I decided here's a way to, to describe... Uh, how all these disparate topics could all be one nice, smooth article. And many of the things that the experts challenged, they said, well, this couldn't be true, this couldn't be true. Book and review on the, you on know, the radio, I, actually. I heard them uh, this and had some references in, in maybe not very reliable sources for them. I went and really started to dig when they challenged me, and I came up surprised myself that in many instances I was actually to able to find real scholarly references for many of the things they challenged, much to their displeasure, because <laughs> they said, well, this is so fruitcakey, how can it go in the article? And sure enough, I found references, scholarly references, and was able to get were, was able to get that in there, and it made uh, mm -hmm. GA that way, and they, they were able to, they basically had to grudgingly allow them in there. But the most amazing thing, I would say, mm -hmm. is trying to get uh, introduction to evolution to F.A., first to GA and then FA, mm -hmm. which was about a year-long process. Very, very, very difficult. Uh, Awa DeWitt was, yeah, that was hard. there on several instances. Um, we're also fighting people that don't like introductory articles, and I'm a big proponent, in, especially in science, of having introductory articles. Um, they they want to have just What's their objection? Well, they think that... They say that the regular main article should be accessible to everyone, therefore the introduction is pointless. Right, as if there's no need to ever like expand on the first principles, and uh, that just seems ridiculous to me. Yes, I, what I point out to them, I don't ahead, know Phil. how persuasive this is. I point out that kind of our gold standard, Encyclopedia Britannica, they have six different levels of article going all the way from kind of mm. uh, first and second grade all the way through graduate and maybe even postgraduate school levels on some topics. And so for us to have simple Wikipedia, which is simple language, but oftentimes simple content as well. And then maybe the lead would be simpler on our, our mainstream articles. And then the body might be a little more complicated than that. Sometimes when you're 
in these discussions, the lead really isn't that accessible for people that aren't experts. So that's a place to put a, a whole separate introductory article, and I think we have about nine or ten of them now in things like general relativity and genetics and so on. And that can be a stepping stone where somebody who just basically has a level that's someplace between oh, maybe eighth grade and twelfth grade knowledge, like the average person, the average person in the general public, mm -hmm. they can use that as a stepping stone without going to a real baby article, get up to speed, and then, then go and actually be able to read the real lead and then maybe the body of the mainstream article. And if they wanted something more specialized, then we'll have uh, daughter articles that will be even more uh, specialized on the topic. But I th anyway, so we had to fight through those objections. And we had two or three single-purpose accounts that came in and just caused unbelievable amounts of chaos. This went on for several months. And the two main, uh, main editors I was working with on this, um, one of them a high school teacher, uh, quit in disgust. They, they, they actually left wow. Wikipedia completely and deleted their accounts from the... Uh, it was so sad. ...from the attacks... And I saw this thing after a year of effort going down in flames, and this this mm -hmm. editor that was borderline a troll uh, on almost, and I have a pretty good idea mm -hmm. who he is in real life, but I won't mention it here. A kind of a famous troll on Wikipedia was causing. Just it's Jimbo, isn't it? You can admit it. No, no. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> anyway, it's in a whole other story that I won't put in a podcast, but it uh, was causing so much chaos that. On almost every article he edited, everything he did was reverted. I mean, he just did nothing but produce misinformation wherever he went. And I don't, mm. and maybe on purpose. Finally, what I did is I I tried a ploy, which I'd learned from silence, and people were shocked when I did it, but it actually worked. So here we are. We're two or three months into FA. We already got a GA status. I and now my two main co-editors have quit. I put it up for deletion. I put the article itself up for deletion. Phil, I was going to kill you then. I have to say, I was like, "What is Phil doing?" Ah. Under your name or under a different? Well, actually, I had one of my co-authors put it up for deletion, but I was the one who told him to do it. So okay. that was uh, yeah, my that strategy. Was and of course, people said, "What on earth are you doing? You're insane!" And what happens is, we really needed eyeballs, especially three, four months into the FA. Nobody was coming by anymore, and we were getting beaten to death by this troll. We put it up for deletion. Immediately, we had 100, 150 new sets of eyeballs show up who said, this is nonsense. Well, the way single-purpose accounts work is they're, they're basically grandstanding, and they're basically standing there with their, their foot on your throat. With 150 people telling him he was full of nonsense... Um, he quickly, uh, you know, turned tail and ran, basically. And in fact, he he, mm -hmm. he left Wikipedia never to reappear, at least under that name. <laughs> it completely overwhelmed him by people showing up and saying, "This is mm -hmm. nonsense, pure nonsense." And that was this huge outpouring of people who said, "This is a fantastic article, one of the best art written articles I've seen." Pushed it, uh, made the FA. Um, whatever you call them, the coordinators, say, that's it, Th this is done, uh, this thing is now FA. Mm -hmm. And that's what pushed it over the edge, because it right. had been lingering 
for several months, and this was like its third attempt for FA, and it had gone through two or three attempts for GA before it finally made GA. It was a very, very, very arduous year-long process to get it there. And so that was my ploy, basically, to say, I've had it. Let's bring in new eyeballs and do something really drastic. And that's what I did, and it worked. Yeah, I was actually working on the writing on that article. I was trying to copy edit it while this nightmarish thing was going on. <laughs> this like nightmarish year-long situation. And I have to say, it's like near impossible to copy edit an article that's undergoing that kind of controversy because yeah. you're painstakingly trying to work on the language or the organization of the sections, or whatever. And like you come back a couple, three days later, and the section you've just painstakingly worked on is like totally gone. Yeah. You know, yeah. or it's been it's been totally changed into something new. I mean, articles that are totally unstable like that, you know, where yeah. people are edit warring over them, you actually cannot work yeah. um, in any, you know, real sustained way. I actually had to quit the article several times and say, look, I'll just come back later, yeah. you know, when you've decided what you want to include and, and all of this, you know, fighting is done. Then I can come back and work, you know, on the copy editing. But it was just so hard. You know, it just felt like all that I was trying to do with the copy editing was totally wasted. It's like swimming in molasses. Why, in order to do that sort of sex work? People that have never experienced this. So, what about. Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, people that have never experienced. Yeah, no, go ahead, Phil, finish up. People that have never experienced this kind of editing, which is only, I will say, thankfully, is only in a tiny fraction of of Wikipedia articles, and most Wikipedia editors have never actually experienced this kind of editing don't really have any idea what it's like. It's like swimming in molasses. It's just awful. You feel like you're drowning. You can't make any progress. You take one step forward, two steps back. It's, it's just nightmarish. People are extremely angry. People are not just quitting the, quitting, uh, quitting the article. They may quit the wiki project that's involved. They may quit Wikipedia completely. They're so disgusted. Uh, sometimes I've seen some of these uh, disputes drive off three or four articles completely out of Wikipedia, maybe never to return in some cases. They can be incredibly damaging. Yeah, editors? And, yeah, we, uh, we actually have to do a whole podcast on these controversial articles, actually. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah. That would be great. Oh, what about, uh, just interesting stories, a situation you've had that has been uh, unusual for you? Um... You know, we spent a lot of time already, so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and just finally, you know, when we're talking about time frames, the other thing I think is important, you know, I, for maybe it's just me because I'm such an impatient person in general. I just think it's interesting to look at the time frames that we've had, um, maybe fastest time we've ever gone from sort of stub to FA or um, anything like that, just to give people an idea who are interested in doing some work like this but not sure how much they should set aside. Um you know, the research process for you, how long does that take? Uh, you know, how long do you wait for peer reviews and so forth and so on? Um, I would actually like to emphasize the slowness of this. Um, yeah. I write a lot of featured articles, and it takes me months to write each yeah. one. Um, and, you know, sometimes they're overlapping, um, but I actually consider my rate of featured article production would is quicker than it would be for most people because a lot of the research – 
is already completed for me because I've already done it for my dissertation. So like, for example, when I wrote this series of articles on Mary Wollstonecraft, I had already read a lot of that material because I, I've already, you know, and taken notes on it and everything. It, It was done, it was completed. And so, you know, putting it into article form was then, you know, what took time. So I'm always shocked when, when people are like, Oh, you know, um, I did all the research and wrote this in one month or whatever. I'm like, well, That can't be unless, you know, the, there are only five articles on this. You know, you couldn't yeah. possibly have gone through the entire process. Yeah. I mean, I, I sometimes I give people an estimate. So, like, for example, the Lord of the Rings article was brief, was up for a featured article review or still is or something. And uh, I made a list of the things that I thought had to be fixed. And I said, I think this would probably take a year, mm. you know, for people who are not focused on it every single day all the time yeah. to do and right. they were like what no that couldn't be and i'm like do you know how much is written on the lord of the rings yeah. it's a yeah. lot you have to figure that out you know what to include what not to include then you have to spend time reading it finding it buying it whatever you know it, it takes an incredible amount of time especially something you're doing in your spare time like you said like yeah i was lucky when i was doing harry tubman because again like i had i had the ability to sort of yeah shuffle my schedule around a lot and just sort of devote most of my time to doing it but most people don't have that luxury and and uh, you know generally speaking i don't so yeah i think having that time and and being patient with people you know like uh, you know when i ask somebody for a review i want to you know i'm checking every hour has they put the review up yet have they put it up yet but that's dumb of me to do that and it's important for us to give people that time and space to read it and care Carefully put down their thoughts and things. So I just want to stress that need to be patient. And, you know, yeah, I, I actually like it when people want me to respond instantaneously. Because, like, when I was working on the reception history of Jane Austen, uh, that's going to have to go really slowly because I know every article on Austen is going to get picked apart like the articles on Shakespeare were. So I know it has to be really ready when it goes. And so I was really going – I got, like – I solicited peer reviews on that one in particular. And, you know, I've got, like, four people peer reviewing it simultaneously, you know, and I'm going to check out books from the library that I thought I was done with, but I wasn't, you know. And, of course, some of the other people have those books, so I have to wait for the books to come back. You know, it's a really long process, and sometimes I feel like people are um, anxious to be done with a peer review, you know, and sometimes I think it would be better with peer reviews if people left a whole bunch of comments, and then you could go to them, you know, two weeks later and say, okay, I've addressed your comments. But I don't know if we think that's how peer review works. We can expect too much. Uh, Another (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's important, too, that – I lost my point. Never mind. Well, I was going to say we expect Other these, thoughts. Anything else? I was going to say we do expect Phil, reviews to be too fast. Uh, the times that I've done, I did a pretty extensive review for Willow on Encyclopedia Britannica, and it did take me a few weeks. And by the time I'd finished my review, she'd already got it to FA status. So I don't know if she used any of my comments or not. I, I put them in a sandbox and just linked her to gave her the link. And I don't know if she actually used them or not, but it can take quite a while. I've never seen any anything go from start or stub to uh, FA. The, the shortest I've ever seen is maybe about five months. I mean, maybe there's some that are faster, but I've never seen anything faster than five months. And it's a very, very intense five months. Yeah. Definitely. And that's, you know, that's, a, I think, a good point for us to sort of finish up because uh, Willow was one of the people that Wadawit made me wait for in terms of getting a review of Balzac when we were first setting out. And um, I wish she'd come back to Wikipedia because she hasn't been around in a while and I'd, I'd like to see her editing again. Moni, did you have something you wanted to throw in? 
Well, first of all, I miss Willow very, very much, and I'm sorry that she's no longer around. If she's listening to this, she needs to get back. Yes, come At back. any rate, um, I, um, I I wrote five five articles on the Everglades, and I wrote them within a five week period. Um, and I'm not really stressing that this is uh, something that's a, a standard that anybody should should follow. I don't know how that was accomplished. I absolutely do not know how. Um, most of it I wrote within one article I wrote a week, um, but then I got a lot, a lot of help from the FA team, uh, and I think that's the primary reason why I was able to do those so quickly. Uh, I think the shortest time I've ever been able to bring an article to FA was the four-week period that I was able to do some of those Everglades articles. Uh, but uh, And I think the longest uh, I took was 10 months uh, for To Kill a Mockingbird from the time I started to the time it was promoted. And a lot of that was, uh, was learning what the, uh, what the standards were uh, and then uh, also learning what I had access to, learning, you know, doing a lot of my own research or uh, not original research, being able to, to hunt down things that I didn't know had existed beforehand. But I would say probably two months, two to, two to six months is, is, a good, uh, is a good way to, to judge how long a featured article should take. And something that's uh, interesting to note is that there's a lot of um, peer reviews that have gone up recently, GA reviews, for Martin Luther King Jr. That's my cat. And uh, the uh, just thinking about how long that would take would take probably six months to a year to do that all the way through. And I'm just kind of watching that and knowing that some one of these days, one of these days I'm going to have to drop out of everything completely <laughs> for six months to a year, and that's what's going to have to have to take. That's how long it's going to take anybody. Plus five trips to A and I uh, to resolve all the disputes that's going to occur from it. So yeah, definitely. But don't you think right, the Phil. king of state's going to weigh in on that one? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. All right, Phil. You wanted to talk about the the FA coordinators. I just thought we should at least mention them because they do put in a lot of work and they uh, sometimes yes, are very very helpful. Some people I've heard say they are less than helpful in some instances. But in many cases, I know I've heard praise for the FA coordinators um, in their uh, their yeah. shepherding certain things along. Once they've reached a certain level, helping editors uh, push it that, that last little bit of the way and uh, clean up things and, and yeah. do whatever they need to do to reach that standard. And I, I think they, uh, they do tremendous amounts of of uh, work, value, valuable work that really is not adequately recognized all the time. Yeah, I, absolutely. Keeping track of all that stuff has got to be just insane. Moni, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, no, I don't I, know, I, Sandy has this like gigantic like database or spreadsheet that she has to keep track of all the FACs on all the time. Wow. Like, you know, how many supports they have, how many opposes, what people have said, you know, how, have the images all been checked? You know, do they have all the appropriate sources and licensing and have all the sources been checked in the article? I mean, it really is like a nightmare keeping track yeah, of all that. You can imagine I mean, people put their, their comments on those FAC pages sometimes in the weirdest way, and they're, they're really sort of difficult to read sometimes. So apparently she's got to sort of find a way to, to organize it herself. And um, I think there's also a lot of behind-the-scenes work that goes on, you know, of all the archiving of, of nominations and making sure that the person who nominated the article is actually one of the significant contributors and that they don't have other articles that are nominated. There's all this sort of checking of, of things to do. Yeah. yeah, I completely agree. Sandy Georgia just uh, is extraordinarily dedicated to... Um, 
to to the project. And when she sees a good article that that she she recognizes, then uh, she's very she's very dedicated. I I don't understand how how it gets done. It, it completes completely blows my mind. So there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, the things we have to say about uh, feature articles and shepherding things along, and we close off by saying thank you so much to Rawl and Sandy Georgia and Willow. Please come back to Wikipedia and start editing again. We love you, Willow. Yes, Willow. Thank you all uh, for being part of this. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Phil Moni Awadowit, and this is Skartol. Thank you for joining us, and we'll talk to you next time. Goodbye. Bye. Bye, y'all.